Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, June 29th. I'm Andrea Linares. Here are today's headlines. The planet's hitting another grim milestone as the number of coronavirus cases and deaths surges at home and abroad. And as a number of states report record numbers of cases, the Trump administration warning that the window is closing to stop the spread of the pandemic. A shocking report confirmed by three major news outlets saying that Russia offered Taliban fighters a bounty to kill American troops. The president saying he did not know, but controversy engulfing the White House. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. The world has now seen over half a million deaths from the novel coronavirus. According to Johns Hopkins University's tally, the United States holds the highest death toll from COVID-19 with more than 125,000, over a quarter of the global death toll. Brazil has the second highest death toll worldwide with more than 57,000. Earlier Sunday, the world reached another major number, over 10 million confirmed cases globally. All this while right here in the U.S., the number of coronavirus cases has surpassed 2.5 million. More than 30 states reporting increases in cases. Some governors taking measures to stop the spread, pushing back on reopenings, while some Republicans make a swift change in messaging, including the vice president now speaking in favor of wearing masks. Lorraine Gossetis has the latest. Hospitals are bracing and testing sites are overwhelmed as seven states report a record number of new cases over the weekend, including Florida. The state reporting more than 8,500 new cases Sunday after reporting a record high Saturday of more than 9,500 cases. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis blaming recent increases on a backlog of tests that all came through at the same time, but conceding that there is a reason for concern, particularly in the demographics of confirmed cases. That positivity increase is really being driven uh, by uh, a big increase over the last three weeks in uh, individuals testing positive throughout the state of Florida in younger age groups, particularly 18 uh, to 44. A former CDC director saying on Fox News that testing is not the reason for the increase in numbers. I can tell you with 100% certainty that in most states where you're seeing an increase, it is a real increase. It is not more tests, it is more spread of the virus. At least 31 states are seeing a rise in week-to-week COVID-19 infections. They're probably looking at having to go back on a very strict lockdown to suppress the transmission. At least 13 states have paused or held back their reopening plans due to the rise in cases. We want to get the economy back. But you've got to do it in a measured way. And now we're seeing the consequences of community spread, which is even more difficult to contain than spread in a well-known physical location. Over the weekend, Arizona, California and Texas seeing a record number of hospitalizations. In Texas, the positivity rate increasing to more than 13 percent, double the rate that the state leaders deem safe for reopening. COVID-19 has taken a very swift and very dangerous turn in Texas. On Sunday, California following Texas and Florida, ordering bars to close in seven counties, including Los Angeles. 
Although President Trump has refused wearing a mask, some Republicans are recommending that the public do so. The vice president, while visiting Texas, seen wearing one for the first time, changing his approach after weeks of saying concerns over the sudden surge in cases were overblown. We encourage uh, everyone to wear a mask uh, in the affected areas and where you can't maintain social distancing. Until we find a vaccine, these are really important. Republican Senator Lamar Alexander arguing President Trump could be the key to convincing more people to wear masks. I wish the president would wear a mask when it's appropriate because millions of Americans admire him and they would follow his lead. The vice president is canceling campaign events in Arizona and Florida, but will still be traveling to these states to meet with governors and address coronavirus concerns. Right now in Arizona, the infection rate is 10 times higher than it was in April, and 90% of ICU beds are currently occupied. Meanwhile, in Florida, South Florida beaches will be closed for the 4th of July holiday weekend. That's all the information we have right now. Andrea, now back to you. Meanwhile, from Florida to Arizona, the battle over face masks continues. Malena Marchan has more on the continuing controversy. Last week, the city of Miami, the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in Florida, started issuing fines for not wearing a mask. It's like having a ticket. It will go into a computer eventually, and we're going to keep data. Fines start at $50 and can go up to $500 if you are a repeat offender. With the rapid increase in cases across the country, many cities and even some states have chosen to make wearing a mask mandatory. Masks are estimated to reduce the risk of coronavirus transmission from 17 to 3%. It helps to eliminate a problem that is very serious because the virus is still extremely dangerous. That's why many say they use them even though it's not the law where they live. It's not enough that the experts recommend it for me to obey because I'm nobody to say yes or no. But not everyone shares the same opinion. The Republican alderman from Arizona, for example, appropriated the phrase uttered by George Floyd, Eric Garner and others before they were killed by police officers to express his opposition to wearing masks, saying they don't allow him to breathe. In West Palm Beach, Florida, a mandate to wear a mask went into effect last week, and while many are supportive, others are opposed to its implementation. Even though it's estimated that some 33,000 lives could be saved by October 1st if almost everyone starts wearing a mask, the percentage of people in favor of using them is high, although a recent survey reveals that the issue is highly politicized. Last week, 89% of Americans who left their homes said they wore a mask, compared to 11% who said they did not. Reported by Lourdes del Rio in Miami, Florida, Malena Marchan, U News. In other news, the Supreme Court today struck down a Louisiana law regulating abortion clinics, reasserting a commitment to abortion rights over fierce opposition from dissenting conservative justices in the first big abortion case of the Trump era. Chief Justice John Roberts joins with his four more liberal colleagues in ruling that the law requiring doctors who perform abortions have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals violates the abortion rights the court first announced in the landmark 
landmark Roe versus Wade decision back in 1973. In two previous abortion cases, Roberts had favored restrictions. And at the White House, President Trump is pushing back on a bombshell report accusing Russia of offering bounties to the Taliban to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan. This while members of Congress push for answers. But first, the president is facing criticism over a video he retweeted where one of his supporters shouts, quote, white power at protesters. It was just after 7.30 on Sunday morning when President Trump thanked a Florida retirement community for its support and posted this edited video of an angry clash between residents. A Trump supporter chants white power twice. But the White House claims President Trump did not hear the white supremacist taunt, a spokesman saying in a statement, what he did see was tremendous enthusiasm from his many supporters. So far, Republicans have been largely silent, but the Senate's only black Republican, Tim Scott, called on the president to take down the post. I think it's indefensible we should take it down. Less than an hour after Scott's comments, the president went on to delete the tweet. And President Trump facing more criticism, responding today to a New York Times report that a Russian military unit secretly offered to pay the Taliban to kill American troops in Afghanistan. The Times also claiming President Trump was briefed on the findings. The president lashing out on Twitter, writing, Intel just reported to me that they did not find this info credible and therefore did not report it to me or the vice president. Possibly another fabricated Russia hoax, maybe by the fake news, wanting to make Republicans look bad. Last year, 23 U.S. troops died in Afghanistan, but whether any were targeted by Taliban fighters paid by Russian operatives isn't known. This is as bad as it gets. And yet the president will not confront the Russians on this score. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying congressional leaders were not aware of the intelligence, but will be seeking answers to determine if the president was briefed. The fact that the president feels compelled to tweet about the news story here shows that what his fundamental focus is, is not the security of our forces, but whether he looks like he wasn't paying attention. So he's saying, well, nobody told me, therefore you can't blame me. Democratic minority leader in the Senate Chuck Schumer is now calling for tough sanctions against Russia, which is something that Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has resisted. And the Rolling Stones are threatening legal action against the Trump campaign for using their music at his rallies. A spokesperson for the band says Trump has ignored their past cease and desist demands. The Rolling Stones are working through the music rights organization BMI to stop the unlicensed use of their music. The Stone says they have never given the president permission to use any of their music. And turning now to immigration, a federal judge on Friday ordered the release of children held with their parents at three family detention centers in Texas and Pennsylvania, citing the recent spike of cases in two of the three facilities. The federal judge set a deadline of July 17th for children to either be released with their parents or sent to family sponsors. Joining me now to discuss this entire topic is Amy Maldonado. She's one of the attorneys representing the detained families. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to You News. So this is actually good news for the families involved. How long have some of them been in detention and why exactly? 
Most of the families have been there more than six months. Some of them have been there more than 10 months. And the reason that they're there is all of them have federal stays because they're suing the government for other violations of their rights in different cases. So what we've been advocating for since the beginning of the pandemic is we know that this is a very dangerous disease. We know that it spreads in congregate facilities like nursing homes and prisons. And every single one of these families has been determined to be not a danger to the public. There is no reason that we're holding these children and their parents in detention. But because the judge on Friday only had the ability to order the children released because she doesn't have any jurisdiction over the parents, she's the judge that enforces the Flores Settlement Agreement, which is about the rights of immigrant kids in detention. We have been litigating a separate case on behalf of the individual families in Washington, D.C., and that case involves the parents and the children together. So she referred to that case in her order, and she said that basically, you know, like your doctor said earlier, this is a fire. These embers are, are you know, being fanned into flames. So in Judge G's order, she said the house is on fire. We cannot wait. And that's why she ordered the children released. So now ICE has three choices. They can release the children with their parents. That's always been in their discretion. They've always had the power to do that. They can separate the children from their parents and leave the parents in the burning house. Or they can give the parents the option of keeping their children with them in the house on fire. So we're hoping that the government will do the right thing. As we've seen, cases are rising exponentially in Texas. Can you talk to us about the conditions at those detention centers? Have any of the families tested positive? Yes, they have. We're waiting for tests to come back on families in the Dilly facility. We do not know whether they've tested positive, but there are definitely positive staff tests in Carnes, which is in um, which is the other facility in Texas. There are children and parents who have tested positive. And because the families have been in these places so long, they are being infected by staff who bring this into the facility. So, you know, this is very problematic and they need to be released. And there's no reason in this time when the government has shut down the borders, has restricted travel, we have bans. Why are these children and their parents still detained? There's no reason for it. Attorney, so what happens next for these families? So the judge in our case in Washington, D.C. has given the government and our side a chance to speak to each other. And then we have to inform him on Wednesday what the government intends to do. And, you know, we are considering moving forward if the government doesn't agree to release the families. Obviously, we hope that like any sensible human being would do, the government will release the children in the care of their parents. And every single child has parents to care for them. All of the families have places to go in the United States where they can quarantine safely and, and you know, not be at risk in this pandemic. Well, thank you so much, immigration attorney Amy Maldonado. Please keep us posted as to what happens. Thank you, Andrea. And now changing gears, the former Minneapolis officer charged with killing George Floyd and the three other officers accused of aiding and abetting in his death are scheduled to appear in court today. Derek Chauvin is facing a second degree murder charge for pinning Floyd to the ground and pressing his knee down on his neck. Floyd pleaded that he could not breathe. But Chauvin continued to press down for nearly eight minutes. Two autopsies were performed and both ruled the death as a homicide, although there were differences in what caused Floyd's death.
And across the country, major protests that sprang up in the wake of Floyd's death continue on a daily basis. On Sunday in St. Louis, a push to remove Mayor Elita Krusen from office picked up steam. Protesters marched to Krusen's house on Sunday night, chanting, Resign, Lita, take the cops with you. On Friday, Krusen read the names and addresses of those who have been calling for police reform. She says the names and addresses are public information, but the ACLU of Missouri says Krusen's actions were a form of intimidation. And in Minneapolis, this year's Pride celebration looked quite different with the traditional Twin Cities Pride Festival canceled because of the pandemic. Taking back Pride took to the streets on Sunday. The movement began four years ago in protest of police presence at Twin Cities Pride after a jury acquitted police officer Jeronimo Yanes of all charges in the death of Philando Castile. The verdict came less than two weeks before the Pride celebration that year. In California, there are only a few days left to apply for $500 in assistance for undocumented families hurt by the coronavirus pandemic. But as Gianni Aponte explains, more help may be on the way. One day before the deadline to apply for a piece of the $75 million the state of California is providing to help undocumented families affected by the pandemic, almost all of it has been allocated through debit cards, each loaded with $500. The program met the need of 150,000 people. However, what we experienced when talking to our people and seeing the number of calls we received is that the need is even greater. The application period ends on June 30th and people are expected to receive their money in the next few weeks. Yet they say there is still a lot to do. There are 2.5 million people in California who would qualify for this help, and this program will only help 150,000. On the other hand, tax privileges for state workers who do their taxes using the so-called ITIN, or tax identification number, and who have children under six years of age as dependents, are ready to be approved by Governor Newsom. Approximately 40,000 families would benefit, but only in state tax refunds, not at the federal level. Governor Newsom is expected to sign this congressionally approved initiative next week. We invite you to also make calls to the governor's office imploring that we need your signature now, so that this actually becomes a law. Reported by Liliana Escalante, this is Gianni Ponte for U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. And as Mexico struggles with rising case numbers and increasing deaths, it seems no aspect of society is immune from the impacts of this pandemic. Carla Rivera has more on how the country's famed mariachis are struggling with the crisis. The party is over at Plaza Garibaldi. Restaurants, bars, and markets are closed. The COVID-19 crisis has impacted Mexico City's Mariachi Meca, and musicians are struggling to survive. Maximino has been a mariachi musician for more than 40 years. 
According to him, the coronavirus pandemic is the worst crisis he has lived through, worse than the 1985 earthquake and the influenza pandemic in 2008. After the earthquake, we had jobs. There was suffering and bitterness. We were scared, but there was work. We had food to eat. Last Father's Day, Mariachis received food donations from the community. Maximino appreciates the help, but says it isn't enough. They gave us food donations. I appreciate what they gave us, but the food donations don't have everything needed for a home. Maximino is married to Graciela, who is diabetic and suffers from hypertension. She saws, but she hasn't had work in the last three months. The lack of income has made it hard for them to buy her medications. For me, the situation has been very devastating and sad. I had to sell some silver earrings that my daughters gave me. I sold them to buy food and to be able to eat. Mariachi has been a cultural heritage of humanity since 2011. However, musicians haven't received any government support during the pandemic. Thanks to the citizen initiative Salvemos al Mariachi, they have found a way to work and receive income. Andres, a young musician, started the campaign on DonorBox. People make donations and musicians dedicate songs virtually, online. The campaign is seeking to raise $110,000. So far, they have almost raised 10% of their goal. Donations generally come from France, Germany, Poland, Austria, Australia, the USA. More than 20 countries have donated in different ways. From Mexico City, Carla Rivera, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.